Hi folks, Professor Chetlin here and welcome to Office Hours Summer Sessions. For the next few weeks as we enjoy our summer break, Office Hours will release a podcast every other week and we're focusing on things that we can learn, whether it's how to be an adult, life in Appalachia, or study abroad, Office Hours Summer School will provide a little bit of enrichment as you relax from the school year. Hi, my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to graduating senior Grace May about our roots. How are you, Grace? Um, I'm doing really well. About to graduate, so a lot going on. Yay! It's a lot, isn't it? A lot. Um, when you thought, when you think about college graduation, what is the one thing that you're really looking forward to? Well, um, I just found out that I'm going to be um, one of the student convocation speakers. Congratulations. Which, thank you, which is really overwhelming, and I'm looking forward to the moment where I kind of, I found out that my mom and my, my family get front re, like front, uh, front mm-hmm. seat tickets, and I'm really excited for the moment I kind of look out at my mom. Oh, that's <laughs> I've been so kind of sweet. picturing that. I don't know. Um, I have to balance that with also like keeping my emotions in check, but I think it's that's re- going to be a special moment. It's a really powerful moment. Um, Fun fact, folks, um, Grace and I don't know each other from the classroom. We know each other from the Truman Scholarship. Um, Grace, you were the 2015 Truman Scholar and um, because of your incredible commitment to public service. And one of the things that I thought was so cool about getting to know you through this process is the way you talked about being from Tennessee, a state that I actually adore. (laughs) And um, tell us a little bit about where you're from. Well, um, so you say you adore it. I think I took a lot longer. <laughs> I, I think I, I adore I it as well, and it took me a lot longer to adore it. I think I needed a lot of space. I mean, Tennessee is a huge state, but so we'll localize it a little bit. So I'm from um, from Appalachia, so like East Tennessee, um, gateway to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I'm from Pigeon Forge, and sort of like Sevier County is, you know, to kind of place it in some kind of cultural frame is the hometown of Dolly Parton. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a small area that has also undergone a lot of really bizarre kind of kitsch, ki- like kitsch uh, mm-hmm. tourism that sort of popped up around it. So you have like this very meaningful backdrop of of the Great Smoky Mountains and kind of like the Appalachian heritage, Appalachian heritage, and then you also have um, sort of like Dollywood and and outlet like, malls, outlet malls, and like. T-shirt shops and rebel flags and, like, a lot of bizarre... It's a bizarre combination um, and something that, you know, I, I think I did, wasn't always really... Didn't really re- relate to and didn't really know how to be, like, an ambassador of for a long time. So I met your dad, I believe, right. at Truman Scholars Leadership Week. Is He's also from the South, but maybe not from Tennessee. So he is from Birmingham, Alabama. That's right. Um, and I think my relationship with what it means to be Southern really comes through... My parents coming from very different situations. So my, my, they're both from the South. My mom is a local Tennessean from Knoxville. Um, my dad, my dad's experience, I think, framed a lot of what I thought it meant to grow up in the South and like kind of what my obligations were to sort of define myself as a Southerner. So he's from Birmingham, Alabama, in like the 1950s. Right, mm-hmm. grew up in the 1950s, um, and that's something. So just to be completely honest, I mean, his, I'm. That means I'm two generations removed from, like, KKK members. My mm-hmm. dad's father was um, an ex- 
extremely outspoken racist and mm-hmm. also like a uh, domestically abusive and just a very it was a very um hard time for my dad I think to grow up mm-hmm. um and I think it kind of represents kind of what we think of as the worst of what the south was during the civil rights movement and my dad being very young sort of he had to go through so much personal growth in order to kind of overcome that and try to negotiate that as a young child even determining what is moral, what is immoral. And I think um, even though I didn't necessarily come up against all of the kind of overt racism, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot about that I come up came up against um, just as part of like a small town rural community in this age um, that my dad very purposely taught us to know how to confront and this idea that like you aren't you are obligated to be like more moral mm-hmm. more ethical than the society you're necessarily born into I thought that was really interesting because that's what your dad talked to me about um mm. he was so sweet um <laughs> after my book presentation he talked about growing up in Alabama and just this idea that you have to kind of undo everything the culture teaches you mm-hmm. and I think that one of the things that um I think people struggle with, especially being in kind of the Northeast elite bubble, mm-hmm. is that people have such a homogenous and kind of one-tracked idea about the South. And some of it is grounded in history, some of it's grounded in the presence. But growing up, did your parents actively talk to you about kind of the South that they grew up in? My dad, I think there was so much tied up with his kind of emotional pain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he that I think it, it was something that he felt was important, but that he wasn't always comfortable sharing because he is a very private person. So a story that kind of sticks with me is um, when the church bombing happened. That happened. Kids, the kids were the same age as the three girls mm. who, who died were the same age he was, and they lived. I mean, it was a couple streets down, um, and he remembers very distinctly. I think he was probably like six years old, um, yeah. being in the back seat of his dad's car and his dad was whooping and hollering and celebrating this, celebrating Mm -hmm. the death of these kids. And he was in the back of the car and he was crying and he was trying so hard to be quiet because he knew if if he were seen showing sympathy that he would probably be beaten to death. Um, So he had had such an extreme experience um, of having to just so purposefully undo, like this thing you're saying, Mm -hmm. undoing. Um, But that is still a part of my, my legacy in terms of I was grown up, grew up, you know, saying you have to represent a more nuanced view of the South, but you have to take full responsibility mm-hmm. for its history. And I think that's the thing that, that's been, so I'm very interested in education, largely because of the way that I saw education playing into the way that we remembered history and the way we were socialized to see ourselves as Southerners or see other people as not mm-hmm. Southern and then what that, the implications were there. So, um... Do you think that people get that? I mean, how do you get people to get that, especially here? Because I think, I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me when I met you is I I thought to myself, I don't know if I meet a lot of white students from the South here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I thought, oh, gosh, Pigeon Forge, that's where Dollywood is. I was very (laughs) excited by the possibility. So just in, in terms of thinking about being in this environment and talking about that, or do you talk about that with students at Georgetown? I think I came in very much with the idea that I was sort of this um, imposter, and I had spent mm-hmm. all of this time cultivating, you know, being kind of thinking that I was cultivating identities so that I could fit in here, whatever mm-hmm. that meant, with whatever resources I had. And it meant <laughs> that, like, maybe I did grow up, 
you know, living on, like, a mountain removed from everyone else and, like, working on a blackberry farm. And, like, but I would try to, to some degree, erase as much of that as possible. And I think I didn't understand at the time how how I would engage with that. And then I got here. And, um, you know, I mean, an example would be I, 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 ha- I have an accent I, mm-hmm. that comes out sometimes. But I, I knew how to turn it off. I knew how to turn it off and turn it on. And that was something that I, like, held on to so much when I was growing up. Um, that I was like, well, I, I'm not one of you because I speak like someone from the north or whatever I thought that meant. And I think I learned, I, I let go of that pretty quickly when I came to Georgetown and someone started throwing some like, oh, so you're, you're a hillbilly, ha, ha, ha. Like, oh, do your accent, do your accent. And, um, and the first time I felt like I had never had to really confront, I, I always thought that there was something out there that was like bigger than whatever I was around, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that like there's something that's more that's more than whatever I'm, I'm in right now. And then when you confront the more and you realize that you have to defend some of <laughs> what, what you're from, I mean, yeah. it, I think that's a complicated process because I spent so much time trying to differentiate myself in the sense that, well, I, I'm going to read a lot of books and I'm going to, you know, and, and go to college and my way, going to college um, outside of the South and outside of my community is going to be kind of the confirmation, the validation that I'm not a part of all these things that I hate, the, the things that you associate that are negative, like, you know, the racism and the, the extreme conservatism. And, and I think that that when I got here and sort of saw that there was such an unnuanced understanding of the place I was from, I thought, okay, well, I have a duty to be an ambassador to a degree and that doesn't mean erasing or making excuses um for for some of the negative real very real negative problems that the south is facing in terms of facing its history but that's also something that the entire country is going through the entire country is going through this process of facing um facing our collective history especially regarding slavery and that legacy and i think it's more overt in the South in terms of the need because I think some of those things lingered longer and I'm certainly not someone to say that they haven't um, in, in the more overt sense, but I've, I'm more aware of race here than mm-hmm. I ever was there and I think that certainly has to do with the fact that I was a white person growing up in a very white community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a little more, it's cer- certainly more nuanced than... When you talk about living in the mountains or being isolated, right, mm-hmm. um, Relative to what? So I guess it's more isolated than D.C., but did you feel like you were removed kind of from an outside world? I think I was removed on a couple levels. Mm -hmm. I think, um, like, geographically, certainly, it's certainly still removed. When my dad moved up, his plan was to get as far away from people as he Mm -hmm. could for a little while. Um, And we got our road paved in the last five years. I mean, it was um, parts of it were still gravel, um, and then when my dad went up there, it was still dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly from, from that perspective, it's very physically isolated. Um, and that was, that was a purposeful construct that my dad, mm-hmm. dad pursued, um, when he first moved there, um, to be a part of the nature and to sort of have like some relief from the pressures of you know, society that had not always been particularly kind to him at times. Um, but as far as isolated, you know, it was very culturally isolated, I think, um, to a degree that I didn't really even understand until, like, I got here. Um, I think that's changing so much because of technology. Um, I think it was interesting because in high school, I think people would be surprised the amount of diversity that sometimes does pop up in Mm -hmm. these sort of small southern towns. Um, You have a lot of new avenues for 
kids who may be for you just say, like, oh, they're alternative. Like, they're embodying that a lot more. They have ways of connecting mm-hmm. through the Internet with um, ideas that are really powerful to them. And I think that's, if I had grown up in East Tennessee 20 years ago even, that would be a very different experience. And I think that was changing during my time in high school where I think, um, yeah, these Internet communities, these online communities allow people to connect with you know, connect connect beyond what they're necessarily directly exposed to in their homes and in their schools and their churches. And so when you used to, like, did you grow up with television and Internet? So (laughs) we had, uh, we didn't have TV, um, and that was kind of also a purposeful decision by my father, partially. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, I, I think sometimes we would get, like, black and white Mr. Rogers, like, neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. So we would get some PBS. Um, sometimes like, I didn't realize like Elmo was red for a long time. That was <laughs> really mind blowing to me. Um, and so let's see. And then we, we had, we still struggle with internet. <laughs> We're still struggling right. with internet. Right. I remember you, you called me once and you're like, uh, we don't really get the cell phone. My cell phone doesn't work down here. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Cause also there's one cell phone service called US Cellular that works on like on the mountain we live on, so mm-hmm. my family all has that. We have that plan, mm-hmm. but then I would come to DC and it wouldn't work <laughs> very well, and so it would only work when I'm there. And so I finally like made the jump. I was like, I'm getting Verizon. And so I switched to Verizon, <laughs> then I go home and I'm like, Wow, I'm really here. I'm really settled. And so I have to like take my mom's phone and, and borrow it um, to talk to people. But yeah, the internet um, we just have very limited. So you can watch a couple YouTube videos a month, and then your dad is done. So wow. you, have to be very, you have to be very selective. And so that purposeful way of growing up, that some of it's attached to the location, but right. it's about a, a philosophy or an ideology mm-hmm. that your parents thought were really that thought was really important. Um, kind of as an adult, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts about how is that like? What are the benefits of that? You think? I mean, I spent a good. I know how to entertain myself. To be very, <laughs> I mean, to be very like, I really. I, I think um, I spent. The whole, I mean, I think I've been inducted to a certain degree into, like, the screen culture. So mm-hmm. the idea that um, there's always going to be something, like, flickering for your face, like, kind of entertaining you is is not something that I'm just going to bash on because I, I, I get so much out of being kind of plugged into, especially as someone who studies politics, like, that's that's really important. But, um, but I spent so much, it was still so foreign to me that I think I was able to be more critical about, like, what kind of news I mm-hmm. want to take in, whose opinions I want to kind of listen to and interact with because I think um you know I grew up like running around basically like with no shoes on like in the forest and mm-hmm. then I would like get lost and I'd find my way home and then that was like my day that happened Did you get, were you homeschooled um no I wasn't homeschooled um we I went to Pi Beta Phi Elementary School Pi Beta Phi Elementary School is called that yeah there's an interesting so the sorority right it's connected to the sorority so it was a, a settlement school um it was put it was a there's Pi Beta Phi Elementary School, which is connected to Aramont School of Arts and Crafts. And that's really important to me because um, that's where my dad got his... So my dad's a stained glass artist, and that's where he got a lot of his training. Um, and he taught there, and now he's the director of the art school. And the reason their particular history is so important to me, and I think really says a lot about what is so special about Appalachia. So when people say, like, something about Southern culture, well, I'll tell you something really great about Southern mm-hmm. culture, and it's something like Aramont School of Arts and Crafts. So... Um, back, it's been over a hundred years, like over a hundred years ago, um, the Pi Beta Phi, like sorority at that time, fraternity, I guess, um, it was still women, mm-hmm. but they came in and they, they saw that there was a great, I mean, it was a very impoverished area with very little connection to the outside world. And they set up a clinic, they set up a school, the Pi Beta Phi School that I went to, and they set up 
uh, eventually an art school, and the art school was based on the idea that they started seeing all this really incredible craft, um, mm-hmm. you know, all these things that were functional for the, the people in the area, um, like basket making and furniture making, had such a beautiful art to it that wasn't being seen by the outside world. And so even though it was functional because they were making everything for themselves, it had great appeal and great cultural significance. And so they started um, basically, and the other part that's really interesting to me specifically is like someone who's a woman from the South, which Mm -hmm. is also its own experience. Um, It empowered a lot of women in the area, particularly because they were, you know, able to sell a lot of the things they made and have an income that that made them somewhat independent or at least contributed to their family in a really significant way. So, um, so that's, that's a pretty interesting interesting part so of what, somewhere I grew up. And I, I grew up in kind of taking classes there at the art school. Mm-hmm. And so and in terms of talking about my dad's philosophy, I mean, yeah, my, my dad's philosophy of nature is very much connected to this idea of, like, creating things with your hands and being really purposeful about how you live your life, not just in, in consuming, but how you express yourself and the idea that, like, art and creation is something that we sort of, I think... People are creating things all the time in terms of, like, you know, the Internet, for example, like that kind of technology-based creation mm-hmm. is so interesting to me, and it's something that I, I plug into every day. But how often do people kind of sit down and just, like, create something that can't necessarily be transported no, <laughs> like that's, or consumed electronically? That's you know? so amazing. I have so many questions okay. and interests. <laughs> so when you write a book about this experience... Oh, <laughs> Or do a PhD in history to talk about this. Um, I'll be happy to help you. This is such an amazing, interesting thing to me also, because I think that there's something about the assumption of growing up where you did, where there's this kind of deprivation. Exactly. Right? That your education surely was missing something because of where it was located. But here is this really rich and beautiful history that you get to be connected to. But I do wonder if within the kind of context of your town, mm-hmm. um, is there was there like kind of a class weight put on the kids who got to do the art stuff or I mean because your dad seems so different or your the way you lived was so different did that also create a level of isolation from other people around you? Well, I think first of all, as far as just what the craft kind of legacy means, I think is something that is still being kind of negotiated. So. Mm-hmm pretty heavily in terms of what does it mean to the local community now, now that it's not necessarily representative of what people care care about or do in their daily lives. And there's this kind of idea, like, how do we reconnect this? I mean, the school itself, I think, has gone through, within my lifetime, I remember there's a time where it was much more um, geared towards drawing kind of international or global mm-hmm. or national appeal for, for artists in a contemporary sense, but also bringing in that old craft mm-hmm. and then it was like but how do we also make it relevant to the people living in, living yeah. in the community how do we still make it resonant in that sense and I think that's something that has been kind of what my dad is focused mm-hmm. on so much is like how do we still make this powerful and enriching for and empowering for the people who live here and I think that's sometimes difficult because I think we do live in a world where I mean people are not just because you're from rural Appalachia does not mean you're whittling your own, like, broomstick. Um, <laughs> but maybe there's some value in that. Yeah, maybe there's maybe, some value yeah. in, in that. But I think that the point you said, deprivation, I think is such an important word because I think I was a little snot-nosed kid for a long time who really did feel deprived. Like, mm-hmm. I felt, and not, you know, not from a, not even talking about finances or anything else, but just talking about, like, culture. Like, I felt like that was such a, a void. Um, and so that's, 
you know, I mean, we were talking about now, it is exciting. It is exciting that there's this really rich cultural heritage that I think is so, so overlooked. Um, and I want to figure out how I can kind of better represent that and, and reflect on that. I mean, and I do, I still do art, um, which is not something that I, I think I talk about very often. It's not something that I think any of, many of my mm-hmm. friends even really know about because I think it was such a, it was integrated into how I grew up. Like, you're supposed to create things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... I don't know. Right now, like right now, the way I do that is, um, and it doesn't have to be, it's like right now what I do is I I do like really um, like elaborate cookie decorating. Like the ones I see on Facebook with the people. Isn't that like a Spanish thing too? Where you make, I think it's your, or maybe it's Italian, where they're like, the cookie's like, tiny, but then you're drawing like an entire alfresco scene yeah, yeah. of so, like the birth of Venus Right, like that something. kind of stuff, right. So you, you know can do, do like that? Yeah, I, I, yeah, and so the reason I think that's so interesting is because I I put a lot of pressure on myself uh-huh. with, with art, and I think what's great is like, okay, well someone's going to eat it, so then this it's gone. fascinating. Can, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's, Grace May, so <laughs> many talents, I can't oh keep up. No, I think that's so cool. It's cheap. The thing is, really, it's like the cheapest because, like, you can go get like it's it's really cheap, a really cheap canvas, canvas, and then you get to like pass it out and give it to people you care about. So it's I don't know. I think that's been a really. Do you have pictures? Yeah, I have. Pictures. I may want to show you. Do you want to show you right now, real quick? Yeah, you can okay. show me live on the air. Okay, these are my Christmas cookies. So, we so, have little cardinals. So I think that this is. Gosh, I have so many other things. So have you ever brought any of your? Dirt? Oh my gosh, listeners, you can't see this, but Grace has apparently made a cookie with an entire... This is beautiful. There are birds. There's holly. This is the most gorgeous cookie I've ever seen. Are you kidding me? You can take this this out. You can take this whole section. (laughs) All right. We might have to edit this. This is beautiful. Thank you. So have you ever taken any of your Georgetown friends with you to Tennessee? Yes. And what was that like? Oh, gosh. Okay. So not only did I take my friends from Georgetown to Tennessee, but I took them to Tennessee on the most important weekend... Um, which is Pig Roast Weekend. Tell me everything about it. Pig Roast Weekend is. Um, so the way that my house is situated, we have, um, we actually, because my dad, again, like, sometimes, oh, gosh. So he he and his best friend, when they were, like, in their 20s, decided they were just going to go, like, buy land up in the mountains, mm-hmm. and that's about as far, I think, as they planned it. So they bought the land together, and then we have, like, this joint-owned barn area, and then our two houses, which they mm-hmm. built, built together. And... We use the barn, so every year um, in the fall, in October, we have the best day of the year, which is Pig Roast, pig roast Day, um, where we invite all of our friends and family and, like, roast a pig in the ground. I love it. Um, so there's just many traditions as a part of this. There's, um, like, all, obviously, there's dancing, there's a hoedown, of course, um, but we all, like, everyone carves pumpkins and everyone brings their, like, their special dish, and sometimes we have, like, 200 people um, you know, so that was, like, my... I mean, they've done it... This will be our 20th year. Oh, my gosh. And I'm, you know, 22. So it was it's this kind of community event um, where we have all of our friends and family come come through. And so I brought them to that, which I think was a pretty good uh, introduction to, to to the best parts of, of Southern life. So my, uh, you know, they got to have, like, real moonshine. And it's real moonshine because it's, like, a risk to drink it. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was from my... It was from my, um, so one of the, so there's my dad and, and my mom and our family, and then there's Dale and Jara mm-hmm. Gilmore, who um, basically like my second set of parents, and then their two kids. And um, one of their, their son has become an expert in moonshine, 
And so he has a still in their kitchen, and so we try all the new spirits every year. Um, and I think I, I tried some this year, and it was pretty safe. The year before, someone was holding their cup, and it was like a one of those like paper Dixie cups, mm-hmm. and they turned around and it had like eaten through the bottom, oh, which is probably an indication that it shouldn't go into <laughs> your intestines. Um, but you know, I thought you were a vegetarian. No, I'm not. Actually. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you think when you left to go to Georgetown in your freshman year, could you ever imagine bringing any kids from here to Pig Roast? Oh, I, I don't think I had... <laughs> oh, gosh. I think, um, you know, as much as I will, I'm very proud of Pig Roast, and I don't think I ever mm-hmm. question the validity of that tradition. But I don't think I really thought... I think I was just... I was thinking forward so much. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just... So much of my time had been about how I was going to get out and how I was going to, like, escape, which is, again, very dramatic looking back in terms of... <laughs> Part of it was just, like, childhood angst that I mm-hmm. didn't know how to control, and I think everyone feels like that to a certain extent. And I attached it to what it means to be, I don't want to be, like, a hillbilly. Like, I don't want to be living in the backwoods and that. So I need to go out, and I'll get an education, and, like, college will get me there. And I think I have a much kinder view now and a much much more gracious view of where I came from now. And so now I love the idea of taking my friends back, and, like, I might have to translate a little. I mean, I've literally had to... I had my, my roommate... Um, came and came and visited. She's the first person to visit. And um, most people, like, you know, the accents are not insane. Um, but if you talk to one of, like, the old timers, mm-hmm. there's a point at which someone gets above, like, about 70 that sometimes I had to actually translate. She's from Maryland. And I had to, like, go back and forth um, because she just could not understand a word that was being said. So I, I don't know. I think, um, I think I think when I was actually, when I had my Truman internal mm-hmm. interview with you, um, and I, I, I think I... Uh, I'm trying to remember. No, it was my Truman. So I was my actual Truman. In my actual Truman interview, um, they were questioning a lot. This is what they pushed me on a lot. Mm-hmm. So in the whole Truman process, it's you know it's all about public service, and that can manifest in so many different ways. Um, and for me, I was talking a lot about so my issue being immigration, how you deal with immigration and education um, mm-hmm. in rural areas in the South, in places where there's also cultural barriers and a lot of um, you know, racial conflict that hasn't been resolved. And you also have these cycles in these rural areas, these cycles of poverty that you're introducing a new population into. And there, there are, there's already marginalization going on. It's like, how do you contend with all of the, the need that exists there to make the whole community stronger when so much of at least the culture from where I come from is very uh, take care of your own and mm-hmm. outsider, insider, and and how do you create you know, an understanding of how you create create new powerful like communities that respect everyone and, and doesn't isn't afraid of the idea of diversity and change as an inherently bad thing. And so I I think me getting to the point where I was willing to tackle that question, which is so much a part of who my experience and where I came from, was a pretty big step that I didn't necessarily think I would get to. Um, in college, because again, I was when I was here, I was looking at urban issues primarily, mm-hmm. and I was looking at immigration and education in D.C. Um, and then starting to realize, like, well, how do I really contend with the needs that I know are going on back home? Was really hard, and I think they they pushed me on that a lot in the interview, and they were kind of talking about what my motivations were, and they said, well, it seems as though you hated where you grew up, and um, and I said, well, yeah, I mean, it, they weren't like because of who I was and because of the values I had, um, 
you know, there were there were times that I felt like I was not very welcome. But I also, you know, I kind of said, like, my hometown wasn't always that kind to me, but I was definitely not very kind to my hometown. And that was the part that kind of had to change first to a degree. And so in that kind of quest for kindness, what is it like with your high school friends who either didn't go to college or don't go to elite colleges or may even kind of, you know, the friends you have on Facebook and you don't like what they post. Right. <laughs> um, so I I was so purposefully, I mean, again, that word's coming up, isolated, that I think in a lot of time in high school, I was, I was relatively isolated. So I think I was so ready to leave that I didn't have that many lingering. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I really regret in a lot of ways, that I kind of moved forward and, and didn't look back for a long time. And now that I'm looking back and saying, like, okay, who do I... Who do I know? Who do I care about? Who do I want to apologize? Like, oh, apologies. Who do I want to, you know, find common ground with again? Um, that's been an, an important process of, of going home. But so my best friend, um, I had one friend who, who was, we were really, really close and sort of had this pact, this like, we're not going to do the, di- like, live on the mountain, born on the mountain, die on the mountain thing. Like, we're going to get out. Whatever out meant, again, we were dumb and we didn't know what that meant but we were like gonna get out mm-hmm. and we were gonna be better again what does better mean I don't know but um and that was the hardest f- friendship that I did end up uh losing um partly because she there were a lot of factors but she did decide to stay in the end and I was so betrayed yeah. by that which which isn't fair but I was so betrayed and I it wasn't that she was just betraying like me, she's betraying herself. That's what I was saying. I was like, "You're betraying yourself. You said you wanted to do more. You said you wanted to be out, and like you're you're putting down. You know, you're signing a lease with your boyfriend who grew up in the trailer next door. Like, why? Um, you're so much more. And I think I think again, like that's such a, a normative way. Like, what kind of mm-hmm. value? I don't know. I don't know exactly how to to reconcile that because um, I think that's. But I, I don't know. That's been one of the harder harder relationships to kind of let go because it was so I owe so much to that relationship for kind of grounding me and then I felt like I didn't come through mm-hmm. for her in the end because and, and she would probably like roll her eyes and be so frustrated that I would say that right because mm-hmm. that's not how she views it right but from my point of view um when we were in eighth grade we made like an oath that we were going to not let each other give up because I think when you're from a a small town it's very easy to get comfortable and I mean again I, a handful of people um, left um, left my hometown at all like I think I can think of three people who went out of state um, for college or for jobs or um, right out of high school and so you you leave a lot behind and I think what you realize is that so much of life continues on without you so I have a lot of people who I who I really do care about and the kind of their lives are continuing they're continuing to like they're having babies and mm-hmm. their their babies are becoming like friends and that's just something that I have yeah. you know um you know the idea that the next like kindergarten graduating class you know will be like my my friends kids or the people who I went to high school with and I'm sort of completely removed from that and I it's I think for a lot of time I never thought that would be like a loss um not because I'm I'm not gonna have babies anytime soon like I would not be a part of that but it's still a pretty you know my best friend is getting married on the, I think the same day we graduate. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, it's not a part of my world anymore. And she was like the center of my world for so long. So that's. 
Well, I think that's interesting because I think there is a strong gender component. From when I um, when I worked in Oklahoma, um, the conversations I have now when students are freaking out about graduation <laughs> are just different. I think in a lot of the conversations in Oklahoma I had, it was about getting married. It was about wanting to get married or parents expecting you to get married and not sure what to do. And here, the suggestion of marriage at Georgetown, people look at me like, I don't know what that is. Right. I don't have an MBA and $400 million in the bank, and I'm, you yeah. know, moving on my life's path. Like, why would I even think well, about Well, marriage is like the antithesis to success. It's like the pothole that like, yes. I don't want to, like, fall into. Which, which I guess the majority of my life I thought that way, too, so I can right. relate to that impulse. But it's so interesting when it's so starkly different, right. and it has so much about class and so much about, I think, where young women see see themselves validated and legitimated. And though I think the culture does it to all women, it's just, I think you buy more time, the more kind of elite the circles you run in. And so in terms of you thinking about what does it mean to be a young woman from where you're from doing this, what are some of the things that you think about? Hmm. So gender, I would would say that gender was the part of my identity that I struggled with or tried to ignore for the longest. I would say Mm -hmm. I didn't even struggle with it. I tried to ignore it for such a long time. And I think it was because for me, um, in this kind of small town, it it carried the weight of the things that I, it's the part that I gained, had the most pressure associated Mm -hmm. with. This is kind of what you're supposed to do. And I'm not necessarily going to point to specific instances that were just horribly sexist, but there was a way that women were, that I felt women could be valued a certain number of ways. Mm -hmm. I didn't like any of those ways. And because I didn't like any of those ways, I thought, well, I will just not... I I wasn't angry at... At that point, I didn't have the vocabulary. Like, right Mm -hmm. now, I can talk about systems of oppression, and, like, those were not Mm -hmm. something that I had any control over growing up in that area at the time, and so I couldn't apply it to my own life. And so at the time, I was just angry. I was like, being a woman sucks. (laughs) And I didn't think being a woman right now sucks because... Um, the societal factors and, like, the pressures mm-hmm. and and these kind of, you know, the patriarchy. Like, I didn't have any of that. So I just, in kind of a very simple way, just decided that I hated being, a, like, mm-hmm. a, a woman in that sense. And so I sort of just ignored it as much as possible, and I saw, didn't really have that sense. I didn't gain that sense of, like, empowerment from it for a long time. And that's been one of the biggest things Shorshan has given me because I had all of, I mean, all of my peers, like, all of my professors, I mean, the number of incredibly inspirational professors I have. I mean, mm-hmm. you weren't even my professor, but you're this incredibly inspirational model of people who would never shy away from what it means to be a woman or, like, defining that for themselves. And at the time, I didn't know how to define that for myself, and mm-hmm. I don't think I, I had the resources to know how to do that. And I've had so much space here in college, and it took me a while to come around to it, um, to sort of, like, define what being a woman in modern society means and that's that's something that in terms of what does it mean to be like isolated or or constricted I mean that was something that I did feel constricted in um in in my hometown that's something that I would point to and say that there was a lot of isolation in that um but I think there's the the part that's been the biggest turning point is there are so many I mean we're talking about like Appalachian women, mm-hmm. some of the strongest people, and not strong in ways that I knew how to respect at the time. Um, you know, my... I'm trying to think of, like... 
you know, my mom is, like, a perfect example of, like, you know, and everyone feels like, like, what it is to be, to be strong and what it means to, I, I think there's this, this concept of being, like, a Southern woman that has to do with subservience mm-hmm. or has to do with this kind of conservative ideal of, like, the traditional family. Um, and so I was... I don't know exactly where I'm going with it or where mm-hmm. I, if I want to pull that out or I might want to pull back from talking too much about sort of... I think... Um, I think the truth is that women... You know, I'm looking at kind of, okay, so the women who who I was in high school with, who, oh, I mean, some of them do, you know, have children. I know that they are taking on so much. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I don't... There's a degree to which I think that so... I mean, Appalachian society is, like, built on the backs of, like, women. <laughs> like, showing up, you know... And, and I think you may be able to look at some of them and say, like, you're being backward by being a part of this. But there's also still incredible strength in being able to persevere. And I'm not sure exactly. I think this, this is the part I'm kind of um, working through still. Because that's mm-hmm. the part that, again, like, at the time, I had such a simplistic view of, okay, that seems racist, so I hate mm-hmm. it. That seems sexist, so I hate it. Um, but I didn't really know what those words meant in a very nuanced way, and I just knew that I was uncomfortable. I just knew that I was upset. I mean, now I look back and I think, wow, there was... I mean, a perfect example would be in college, one of the biggest conversations that goes on, I think, for women is the idea of rape culture and the idea Mm -hmm. of sexual violence, and that was something that was so far removed from what I understood, and yet I was living amongst a population that was so vulnerable to those kind of kinds mm-hmm. of violence, like that kind of violence. And, I mean, an example would be, um, I mean, to a degree, I think a lot of what exists is I didn't... It's like sex education. Mm-hmm. That's so fundamentally important to women being able to make decisions um, about their, their bodies. And because of whatever kind of conservative religious stigma is wrapped up in how public schools are operated mm-hmm. in, the, in a lot of places in the South, that's not something that there's access to. I had abstinence only. And so much of it was shame, based around mm-hmm. shame. So much of it was based around, um, and that was the part where I was like, well, I don't like being a woman. Like, I feel shitty about this. Like, I feel <laughs> right, so you're guilty. You're always made to feel bad. I feel guilty. Yeah. I feel bad. I feel like I can't make the right decision. Um, but, you know, I, I would... You know, because I was so isolated, like I didn't go to co- I didn't go to high school parties, but I would have friends who'd be like casually mention something yeah. like, "Oh, well, she was unconscious, but he, she was." I mean, we're yeah. talking about stories of like obvious rape that at the time I was like, "There's this pit in my stomach. This seems so wrong, but what's wrong?" And it seems incredible to me now that I'm looking back and I'm thinking like, "Well, that that was obviously rape." girl is unconscious, doesn't matter if she's had sex with the boy, like all these mm-hmm. things that, that are so obvious now and maybe I think a lot of people coming to Georgetown already, a lot of You'd girls be already, but you would they be, yeah, know. you would be you would be surprised, I guess, but um, I don't know, the I think, I think what you're pointing to is this idea that you're seeing all of it with new eyes, and I think you're feeling like, oh man, I could have been a little kinder. <laughs> and I think what the, I think what's so amazing is that you now have this language, and you still have these connections, and it's never too late to reconnect. Um, and I think that 
you've done such an incredible job at Georgetown. And not just the like smart mm-hmm. academic part or the winning major awards part, you, though you have done that, of just doing the thing that we all want our students to do is just to grow. That the person you are when you come in the first day, we don't want to see that person ever again. <laughs> um, and for no other reason than we want the impact. And I think that, um, I think the way that you're talking about this and I know the things that you want to do with your future are so in line with that. So to wrap up the conversation, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone on this podcast, and perhaps it'll be an inspiration for your speech. <laughs> if there was one thing that you wish you could tell all your professors, um, what would that thing be? I think that's hard because um, I see my professors as such, as such individuals. So many of them have made themselves so accessible as people that it's very hard for me to to group them all together and mm-hmm. say, like, I don't want to say the same thing to, you know, <laughs> Professor Chatlin as mm-hmm. I, you know. And so um, I, I guess what I would say, kind of echoing what I said before, I would speak to, I'll pick a subgroup, which is the female, the women mm-hmm. professors I've had, and say that, um, you know, thank you for being being a role model. And I don't know... That seems relatively simplistic, but it was something that um, I needed so much coming in into into Georgetown. Um, and the other just, like, weird thank you would be, um, and I, I guess I probably, you'll have to edit this out because we haven't talked about it all, and it would probably, mm-hmm. but would be that, um, you know, as someone with chronic illness, mm-hmm. um, you always have, you know, anyone dealing with some kind of adversity, whether it is chronic illness or mm-hmm. uh, family, you know, mm-hmm. additional family responsibilities. Um, the professors who have kind of seen their students also as individuals and and sort of chosen not to be the obstacle <laughs> has been a, a really in- incredible. And I think, um, you know, that's, yeah, I mean, looking back the last four years and saying that, you know, I have been lucky enough to get these kind of empirical, this empirical validation of some of the things I care about and some of the things I put my effort into. Um, But with all the kind of the baggage that Mm -hmm. I came in with, I had a lot of growth to do to not, you know, see things in such a deficit, to Mm -hmm. not see myself as a problem, see myself as a deficit. And so what I would say to all my professors who are part of that process is, um, you know, thank you for, I guess, validating that my voice was important because I think um, that that took some time. And it validating my voice not as someone who's, like, transplanted into an elite college and then figured out how to play the part, but as how someone who is still, like, from the South and still from Appalachia and how I became that person much more fully um, because of their encouragement. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you. Oh, that was such a beautiful conversation. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, and on Instagram on Office Hours Podcast.